Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another Kraken installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Built in California series where I'm connecting you to the people you need to know, uh, people changing entire industries. And this is a really uh, awesome uh, conversation, I'm sure. Uh, but with us on the line from San Diego, California, is Mr. Garrett, the man, the legend, Moore, uh, the founder and CEO of Agoras. Welcome to the show. Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, the privilege is all mine. Um, so uh, there's a lot to get into, and, and if you've been following along, guys, you'll know where we start, and we always start with the uh, the kind of who we're we talking to here. So, Garrett, why don't you kick us off with a bit of add a bit of color to the picture of about like your background, um, and maybe use that to springboard us into the origin story for Agoras. Right on. Uh, my background is a, is a patchwork quilt of really random different things, but actually in retrospect, they all kind of helped pave the way to get here and why I'm so passionate about this problem and, and solving it. So uh, my background, I love school and sports growing up. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Uh, basketball, football, anything, anything with the sport. Uh, I was, I was in, involved, got a chance to play football at Stanford, got my mechanical engineering degree there. And at some point in life, you realize you're just not that talented anymore and you got to grow up and you got to become an adult and I tried to postpone that as long as possible. So um, I joined the military. And, uh, and I'd always had a passion for, for kind of Silicon Valley and that startup environment. But I, I just, this, this, this compulsive need for, for team sports and competitiveness and purpose as a young man coming of age, I think transcended that. And uh, so got picked up, became an officer in the SEAL teams, uh, spent 12 years uh, deploying and doing that. It was a fantastic experience. Um, a lot of time in the Middle East. Uh, really formative for me as a young man, young leader, young husband, young father. And, uh, and towards the tail end of that career, finally decide, hey, I you know, got three small kids, got to buy a house, let's time to settle down and, and put down some roots. And in, in the course of that, went to go build a house, stumbled in, became an accidental developer. And in that process, went to go build a house off site and just kind of ran headlong into what I call the buzzsaw that is the status quo of construction. And so that was probably 2000. Well, several years and multiple deployments. So from 2015, 16, 17 into 18, that's how long it took us to, to build the property. And uh, at the end of that, I said, hey, this is now this is now a problem that's worth getting out of the military and retiring over. Let me go. Uh, let me go to take a crack at solving this. I don't know what right looks like, but uh, this is a problem that's got to be solved. So what is that problem? I mean, when you were looking to build your own house, like I can't remember the phrase you used exactly, but w w how in your own words, like what is the issue here that uh, Agoras is solving? I wish it was only one issue. There's like a hundred <laughs> issues and they all get slammed together. So I'll, I'll start at a high level. What gets me out of bed in the morning? And then we can work down into some of the tactical problems. So the high level problem is housing has become a massive issue. And it's not just because the Fed's raising rates. Housing is an issue right now from an affordability perspective because, well, let me go back in history a little bit. So 2008 global financial crisis hits the country hard. Everybody that's an adult living through that time remembers it. Well, what happens on the construction side is there's an exodus of labor from the trades that never comes back in because there were no houses to build. It was, it was an existential threat to the, to the residential construction space. So when all of that talent leaves and never comes back in, you've created like a generational mouse that's working its way through the snake. Combine that with a couple other things. One is uh, millennials have now started to hit home buying age over this last 14 year period. 
And the cost of labor and the training and availability of labor has all combined into this giant pool of debt. So as a frame of reference, society in the the U.S. needs about 1.5 million new houses just to stay on top of population growth, immigration, et cetera. Well, we cumulatively underproduced for 14 years. And as a result, now we've built up this debt on the book, so to speak, of about five and a half million units. Well, the problem is, if you're now just getting to the point where you're producing on par to keep up with today's population growth, you've got 14 years of backlog that you're working off. And so this is important because when most people are now experiencing that and their home price, I think people are... uh, most people don't realize that it's kind of econ 101. It's supply and demand. There's there's more demand for a scarce good. And when it comes to housing, it's not exactly an elastic demand. Sleeping out of the rain is not going out of style. People want to live somewhere where we're all competing for a finite number of houses, which therefore boosts up the prices. And so this problem is now going to become a generational problem because there's no easy fix. And so this is the core problem that we're trying to solve in that construct, now we'll peel back the layers of what's the technology and what's the product market fit, et cetera. But at a macro level, our thesis is that housing affordability is going to be a 10 or 20 year challenge. And until we can crack the nut using a technology and a new business model, it's the definition of insanity. We're going to kind of repeat repeat our mistakes by doing the same thing over and over, wondering why we can't build more houses with the labor that we have. Yeah, I was just pulling up um, some stats uh, while you were talking. I was Googling uh, the housing shortage uh, in the USA. It's apparently, there's a crisis um, currently. Yes. So it's not only about the availability of housing, Garrett. It's also about the affordability, right, of housing also. So those are the two things, right? Ironically, they're two, but they're in their own little catch-22. Because imagine an area <clears throat> where housing prices go up. If you want to build more housing in that area, you're paying the labor a lot more because they have to live in the expensive housing. And so the less housing there is, the more expensive the labor gets, which in turn makes it more expensive. And so it spins its own little flywheel. So the two actually go hand in hand more than people realize. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, so, so what have you built? Okay. So people have been building homes off-site for decades. Here's catalog homes were, you know, post-World War II. Well, one of the challenges in, in why we have not been able to connect the worlds of industrial automation and an automotive-like mindset to construction is the reality that construction varies a lot, even across a city, much less a county, a state, or across the country. There's no such thing as kind of standardization because the wind loads, the seismic loads, the style of construction, the local department, there's so much variation that it's really, really difficult to standardize and say, this is the right house that everybody in America should live in. There's also something innate to the American psyche that says, there's an inner cowboy that says, I want to I want to live in, in my own castle. I want to live in a, in a structure that does not look like everybody else's. And so that's the backdrop at a human or a psychological level for how do you build high volume, high production product when everything is one off and everything is technically different. And so the way that we've looked at this is said, Technology is actually the ideal catalyst that can can connect these two worlds. As an example, at Toyota's facility in Kentucky, a new new Camry will drive off the line like every 56, 57 seconds. That's the type of production output and precision we need in housing. But how can you do that when every Camry is a, a different kind of car? So our belief is that if you can tap into the advances that we've made as a society in software and industrial automation and robotics, now that software does not care. 
what what goes into it. So the, the, the analogy I use is in construction, the basic building blocks are already somewhat set up for us. It's the type of materials we use. But if you can now build a new software, you can send it the Death Star one day, Barbie's Playhouse the next day, and then you know a Jeep the third day. And it will continue to deconstruct and say, okay, I need this type of Lego brick that's this color, et cetera. Manufacture all those, and then you can put them together to give you that custom structure. But you have to kind of connect both worlds. And the only way that you can do that is through software and robotics working together. Yeah, so I've actually got your um, How It Works video up on, on screen for everybody. So so you're starting with the design, right? So who's doing the design? Yes. And, 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 and by the way, there's obviously you know, retail, uh, maybe retail is not the right word, but private homeowners, let's say, um, who yes. also want to build a second home. So who's your customer here? Is this a, a builder who needs to build a home for Matt Brown? Or is it Matt Brown who comes to Agora to say, hey, <laughs> you know what I mean? I want a house built faster for less. You know what I mean? It's, it's the builders and developers themselves. Um, because ultimately they've got a better pulse point on what you as the customer want. We're a B2B technology service that allows them to provide new value to you. But for them, usually what it looks like is, what do you want to build? Because ultimately we are deferring to the customer and to the homeowner or home liver to decide that. I should not be in the business of telling you and, and, and your family what you should live in. Like, you know what you want to live in, whether you know, you're in Denver right now, like You've got a very specific style, snow load, et cetera. So you and your builder, the builder sends us the, the file, the digital file for the architecture. Our software and technology then deconstructs all that into a series of zeros and ones that a robot can then interpret and say, okay, I need a stud here. I need a wire here. I need a piece of insulation there. And that's essentially the magic and the secret sauce. Because once you've done that, robots can work very, very precisely and quickly. So we can build a home in an eight-hour shift, give or take, depending on the size, but it's all the heavy lifting that the technology has done in advance to tell the dumb robots all the smart instructions. So let's talk about these robots because <laughs> like, like I'm always curious about it. I've, I've chatting to this founder recently. Um, he's, he basically was part of the engineering team that wrote the software for Tesla's self-driving car. And now he's gone into the manufacturing space, different industry entirely, obviously, but he's taking like this you know, innovative thinking into 125 year old manufacturing processes, kind of not too dissimilar from 125 year old with the way you've always built houses. <laughs> and now he has a, and he has a robot, you know what I mean? Like it can do it better. Um, so, um, what are these robots? Like walk us through the technology here, because it, it seems to me like this is a really important piece of the story. So I'm going to, I'm going to, probably butcher this because our head of automation comes from Tesla and he's probably going to be like, Carrot, you downplayed this way too much. They're so much more capable, et cetera. But I'll give, you, I'll give you my take on it. Industrial automation has actually been around for a really long time. And so when you talk about KUKA and FANUC and ABB and all these other international robotic arm suppliers, they cre they've created an electromechanical device that can pivot in six axes. Okay, it's, a, it's an industry agnostic device. It might, might hold a wind, windshield suction cup holder for a Tesla or it might hold a nail gun for a Gorus. What this thing does is it can go and move itself into a specific location and perform a specific function to a fraction of a millimeter, 24-7, 365 for 10 years, 20 years, with just a little bit of oil. That's the level of advancement that goes into a standard arm. We have not built any standard arms. They're fully off the shelf as is. 
the magic is in telling these arms what to do and how to do it through what's called an end of end effector or end of arm tooling. And so you might put a laser welder for a, an auto body, you know, welding shop in Tesla. But then for us, that might have a nail gun. It might have a saw. It might have a screw gun. It might have a suction cup. And so as you create this symphony of all these different instruments or all these different robots in a line being fed one set of smart instructions, now they can do a lot of stuff that either human beings can't or can't do it as fast or can't do it as safely. And they can do it time and time again so that the net product produces a very high quality, really accurate home with a significant reduction in labor and a huge uptick in speed. Mm -hmm. So, and in terms of materials, is there any kind of material that you cannot work with when it comes to future fit housing materials? Yes, we have built the company based off of light timber for a couple reasons. One is it generally it generally fits the vast majority of residential construction. So you can build everything from about five story apartments down to backyard ADUs out of light timber. You can build skyscrapers. It gets very complex from an engineering perspective, and that's very cutting edge. So let's take that off the table for a sec. When we look at the housing crisis, the vast majority of us live in a structure that's three or four stories and less in some way, shape, or form. And so in that vein, timber is the best building material. It happens to be the cheapest, and it also happens to be what the industry knows. The wild card benefit and why we've chosen it is because it also acts as a carbon sink. So when we look at the responsibility to manage its carbon footprint, half of global carbon emissions comes from the built environment, whether that's heating and cooling of buildings or building the buildings themselves. And so we feel some ownership and responsibility to make our mark. Yes, aircraft and, and vehicles count for a lot, but housing is actually the lion's share, the dominant component that contributes to global carbon emissions. So in that, timber actually acts as a carbon sink, and it's actually the best renewable and sustainable resource to build from. Uh, and it also happens to provide a certain feel or warmth that most American consumers are used to. Concrete and steel have a different vibe that I think is not uh, as common in the market. Yeah, it's interesting because when uh, I've only been in the States for four months now, and uh, when we were driving around looking for a place to live, we were seeing, especially in Denver, because it's expanding, there's like a, a ton of people moving in. It's like another tech center. Uh, after like you know uh, Austin's Hills, and I call it like I think they call it Silicon Hills now. So you got Silicon Valley, Silicon Hills, and then there's Denver, which needs a name. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but um, you know, and we, we're driving around, and you could see like these new developments out in Parker and places like that, and it's all wood. And uh, and my wife and I got into the debate around like why wood? Like surely wood's more expensive than brick. And now, and we didn't quite get it, right? Because now, like, when, well, it snowed last week, and then in the summer, you have these 40-degree temperatures, which is amazing. I never thought Denver would ever get anywhere near that kind of heat. California, yes, just not Denver. <laughs> but um, And anyway, we're fascinated about the materials being used in all these buildings and because we were complete converts around like, no, it's brick and cement, you know, cause that's what you do in Africa. But it seems here yep. to your point, like wood is really the, the go-to material for, for housing period. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, it really is. And it's not that you can't build out of other materials. And there's a whole bunch of factors that go into this. Some of it is psychological. What's the industry used to? Some of it's what's the natural reach resource your country has? Some of it's what are your labor costs? If labor is abundantly cheap and you're paying people 50 cents an hour to lay brick, well, then maybe brick becomes much more compelling. So there's a lot to it. In the U.S., we have become we've built our entire ecosystem around light timber because you, generally speaking, the North American continent has lots of wood, and wood provides a very um, for the strength to cost ratio is pretty good. It'll never match steel, but you can't grow steel on trees. Mm, exactly. Imagine you could. <laughs> yeah, that that's that's the next startup to worry about. Yeah, exactly. And my mom always used to tell me, Matthew, like uh, money doesn't grow on trees. And then I would tell her, yes, mom, where do you think paper comes from? <laughs> she used to like, you smart ass, you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, we digress. Um, so, so I love the process. I get it, the materials, the robotic stuff. How long does it take? Like how fast can you actually build a house? So there's a lot that goes into this. So I'll, I'll kind of work from where, where it should be at maturity, and I'll work backwards to where we are as we grow. In the 1970s, there was a company called Ryan Homes. It has since been bought by NVR, which is a large public builder in the U.S. Ryan Homes had a unique business model. They built off-site as a series of panels. Now, they didn't have computers and they didn't have robots, but they had a manual shop. And what they did is they ran a really tight, disciplined build process. They were 14 days permits to keys for all of their builds up and down the, the eastern seaboard. That was in the 70s. So when I say where we're going, it's essentially back to the future because that's where we need to go. We need to get to the point where a homeowner or a builder or a city can say, we got a housing issue. Let's build homes. Let's get them done in 15 days, 30 days, maybe. That's what, what can happen when you use offsite technology correctly. Now, fast forward and go backwards from that. There is still a lot of work that has to be done at the job site, but from the offsite component, homes should be built in hours, not days, weeks, or months. And so right now, as a frame of reference to give you a sense, so we have a factory out here in, in San Diego, uh, we will put the skeleton of a home together, depending on the size and complexity, in roughly every eight-hour shift. And that's we've got a long ways to go. We're, we've got plenty of improvement, et cetera, but that's kind of what you can tap into when you start putting software and machinery to use in this problem set. Mm -hmm. what's the hard thing about this would you say i mean there's lots of hard things but what's the hard thing about hard things or this hard you know what i mean like it's a hard thing so like yes. what's that like if you cast your mind over everything that you do like what do you what would you say is like is it the robotics piece is it the material supply is it the speed of of 
of uh, development. I'm, I'm chuckling because it's none of the, the above, and I'm going to give you a very lame answer. Honestly, software and robots are pretty darn straightforward and easy. The huh. hardest challenge I face is a mindset shift from an industry that is done in a different way. And so I liken it to how much flack has Tesla taken over the last 15 or 20 years by doing it in a new way? Because there's just so much inertia that went into Detroit and the internal combustion engine. We, it was so tough for us to imagine building it a different way. And I think in construction, a lot of it is is the same. It's it's um, I've done this the same way over and over for the last 30 years. There can't be a better way. The flip side to that is also my predecessors, I think, have approached this this problem set with a tremendous amount of arrogance, which comes into the construction industry and says, you guys are stupid. Here's a better way. And it's like it's it's not quite that easy. It's there's a reason we do a lot of the things that we do. And if it's not done with this right balance between kind of the on-site blue collar and the off-site white collar robotics engineer, those two have to work hand in hand. Neither has an upper hand on the other. And so I think a lot of the short answer to the, uh, the long answer to the short question is the biggest challenge I face is perception management and overcoming PTSD in terms of what people think they know about prefabrication or off-site construction or automation in the construction space. So how do you navigate that? Because it seems to me there's a lot of, well, I would say actually uh, nine out of 10 founders are visionaries. So like they're looking at, well, this sucks. <laughs> there's got to be a better way. Um, and so inevitably what, you, what you're doing is you're, in many cases, you're going up against systems that have existed far longer than, you know, many of us have been on this planet, financial services, uh, as an example. Um, and then, but then again, like there's construction. And then within the system, you have a lot of um, stakeholders that are all in bed with each other, incentivized to scratch each other's backs and to, and to maintain the status quo because it is, at the end of the day, their livelihoods, right? And then along comes the visionary and he's like, yo, that's stupid, <laughs> you know, or there's a better way. Here's what you don't know. We've built this thing and there's a better. And so now you've got this, to your point, like there's this mindset or this friction, right? Of the old way and the new way, the old paradigm and the new opportunity. How do you, what's, what have you learned about navigating that context as a founder visionary? I think there's three things that, that I look at. The first is really trying to build a culture inside our team that we have to earn the right to be heard. You have to get that customer credibility and respect. And just saying you've built a better widget is not going to move the needle. And so a lot of that comes from, honestly, a desire for humility, but then also a, 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 a need to listen to them and go, what are your problems? How can I make your life easier? It's not about making my life easier. It's about making your life easier as the customer. So that's a cultural mindset, number one. The second thing is helping. One of the things I look at for myself as a CEO is to recruit a team that has alignment with the vision, but status quo credibility and credentials. Because I walk onto a job site and people can sniff it out a mile away going, the way he dresses, the car he's driving, et cetera, that guy doesn't know construction. He's not one of us. And so when you find that person that says, no, 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 guys, I am one of you. I've done it the same way for 25 years and I've joined this company because this is the better way and here's why. They can speak to both worlds with a great amount of credibility. And then the third aspect is 
I fundamentally believe in, and I would, I would disagree with any founder that says otherwise, it, there's a certain amount of luck that goes into launching a company. It has to do with timeline, uh, 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 the time that you do it, what are the political tailwinds, what are the environmental tailwinds. Right now, I happen to see a lot of really good tailwinds because housing is a major issue that's getting political attention at the state and national level. Mm. And housing prices are being experienced by everybody. So I think developer willingness to try new technology is at an all-time high because they just can't get the labor at either the quantity, the quality, or the price that they want. And so there's a certain willingness to go, you know what? Historically, I might not have tried. If it ain't, break, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But now I don't have any other choices, so I am more amenable to trying a new way. Great stuff. Um, and so I just want to change uh, gears for a moment. Um, I was having a chat, well, having a chat, <laughs> having a look rather um, at my, well, your Crunchbase profile, which I'm going to bring up for everyone. By the way, if anyone from Crunchbase is listening, you need to give me a free license because I keep promoting you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, you guys have raised, according to them anyway, um, just under $30 million uh, to help kind of solve this problem and so forth. And I, you have this as an ongoing segment because startups are always in a funding cycle of some kind. Maybe not this quarter, but, you know, sometime in the near future, you're going to be there. Um, so uh, this one, this uh, round closed recently, evidently, uh, the last one in September. So I was curious to get your your experience initially. Like, was it harder than you anticipated, easier than you anticipated, given the market where it is? Um, yes. So not a knock against Crunchbase. That's not entirely accurate, which, which is fine. But the uh, we went through, um, it's tough. And it's fundraising has changed a lot over the last 12, 24 to 33 six months because it's just been so dynamic. And so I think as a, as a non, as a first time founder coming from the military, a lot of this was just trial by error, trial by error and learning it on the fly. And I think one of the biggest things that, that I learned very early on is there is a lot of money out there. There's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines and the explosion and proliferation of venture investors over the last 10 years is non-trivial. So in the midst of that noise, how do you punch through a signal? Because you've got thousands of venture firms out there now, all looking to deploy that capital and generate returns. However, when you are a unique business that I don't, I don't fit the mold. I'm not an enterprise software company. I live in the world of atoms, not bits. And that is really hard and really scary. It takes a lot more time, a lot more money, and a lot more patience. And so I think one of the things that I learned early on is I'm going to have to knock on a lot of doors. And so I think it ended up being about 140 pitches before I finally got to the team that we have now. And it, if I could, I would do it exactly the same way because they were worth it. And it helped distinguish between all the other investors we had previously. So I think a lot of that is just persistence. Also recognizing that in this backstop, there are so many different folks investing in so many different things. Find the right match for your business because there's somebody out there investing in that in that type of product or process or service or whatever. Um, great. So I just to maybe stick with the this this particular segment for a little bit a moment longer. Um, you you pitched 140 times, let's just say 139 times, and then the 140th yes. time you were successful for argument's sake. If you look at the 139, uh, let's just say knows that you got to, which is a great prerequisite for success. Um, what would you say, well, what did you change 
so that you could get was it a case of you didn't change the story at all or you know what i mean like did you did you cha- what did you change in your pitch that it got you the success or, or, or do you feel like your success came from just talking to the right type of investor given to your point that you're not an enterprise software company i think there are three facets to that one is you just got to get a certain number of shots on goal like just it's going to take a bunch by nature of the fact that you're asking for a bunch of money from a stranger. So the odds are against you. The second aspect is really learning to understand. And again, I, I say this in retrospect, it seems so obvious to me now, but at the time it's, it wasn't obvious. Not all investors are alike and not all are of the same quality level. There's a huge variation. And so when you don't know, you're just like, oh, you've got money, I'll talk to you. And you you kind of have to go through a bunch before you start to do some some kind of um, sample set analysis going, okay, that person I really thought was thoughtful and respectful. What are they doing? And then you quickly realize, okay, I need to triangulate to a, a smaller subset. So you start to narrow your search a bit more. And you also understand how to better answer the questions they're asking. I would be mortified to go back and listen to my very first pitch because I would be appalled at how sloppy and misguided and ill-informed it was. But I don't think I could learn that until I got just shot down with like, what about this? What about this? Why haven't you thought about that? And so then the deck and the pitch evolves as time goes on because you start to understand what are the types of things they're looking for. They're looking at team. They're looking at total addressable market. They're looking at the technology. Like there's some high level stuff that are going to show up. And if you don't highlight those and you get caught in the engineer's fallacy, you're talking about feature X versus Y. And they're like, stop, go back to the market size and go big picture, make the, you know, uh, do it as it pitch me as if I was a 12 year old and all you had was crayons. Like that's the level of, of detail I'm looking for. <laughs> well, uh, other advice is just come get on the Matt Brown show. Cause then, then there's a credibility gap. It's like, Oh, you in, I'm definitely not all invest in you. <laughs> uh, but that's really interesting, man. I've heard that a few times. Um, in fact, I just got off the show, uh, a show earlier today with the guys from propagate, um, doing some cool stuff in agroforestry. And they, they also s- had the same sort of, they've raised, uh, it was 15, 15 million odd uh, Series A and closed in October. So like now. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, Ethan was also saying to me, he was like, um, he was like, you know, investors will say, hey, well, I like it, but go and do these three things then you put that back in there and then, then we're good. And then we'll, we'll take it forward. So it's almost like, it's like a, I like you, but I need a couple more data points and then we'll do the deal. Yeah. It's very true. All right. Cool. Especially. And I mean, the, now the, now the challenge is too, like the economy's changed, it's cooling off. And so the, 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 the investing dynamics, what they're looking for can change on almost a monthly or quarterly basis based on the overall macroeconomic picture. So it's, um, it's like you're trying to get shots on goal. Well, not only is the goalie moving, but the goal is moving as well. And the, the rink size is all changing. It's just like it's, it's, a, it's a complex process that makes you uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. So how do you decide how much to raise? Because with something like you, it's almost like, well, because you are different. You know what I mean? Like the unit economics are quite an interesting, it's an interesting puzzle to try and solve, isn't it? In terms of like, well, here's what how I would spend it, and here's what the you know, what the return would be. I know you can work it out, but it's not as it's not a simple zero and one thing, or is it? Um, no, and this is probably the greatest uh, uh, 
off-ramp for most investors is wrapping their head around this because it's so unique. If I'm a software investor, I understand that I need to get 4,000 mats at five bucks a month and I, you know, I can run my math. But when I'm building a widget and this widget happens to look like a house and a single widget can be north of six figures, the unit economic, it just, it's a very different paradigm. And so the short answer is uh, there's a, lo- a lot of our predecessors have raised millions and millions, billions of dollars trying to solve this problem. We've tried to take a slightly different approach, which is raise as little as possible because the less money you have, the more frugality and craftiness and thriftiness it forces. Mm -hmm. And you have to make your learning and you have to make your mistakes much more cheaply. It's not that you don't need a lot of capital, but our view is that capital should be designed not to find the problem, but to scale a solution. And so we're still even though I think I've got solutions, we're still in a lot of fact finding because this rabbit hole goes so deeply. So in, in a kind of a, in a layman's terms, we, we are at every step in the stage. So a seed or a series A or a series B, we are going to require a lot more capital than a traditional counterpart that wor- lives in the world of bits. If I've got 10 software engineers and a bunch of computers, that's way less than cranes and machines and warehouses and all the workers' compensation insurance and all the other stuff that goes into running this complex business. So my milestones at every step in the company look different than my counterpart, but we're going through a lot of the same growing pains. You're establishing proof of concept. You're working on product market fit. You're growing a team. You're building an executive team, et cetera. So um, I would say, you know, as a frame of reference, um, it is a crunch base saying we're, we've raised $30 million today. It's a little bit less than that, but um, it, it's probably in the 40 to $60 million raise is our next step. And I mean, it's, it, it goes up from there. But what's different though, is that when people look at this and say, hey, Garrett, if you solve this, residential construction is a $350 billion market just in the US. So if you, if you are right and you win, this isn't a $1 billion company, maybe not even a $10 billion company. Like there, there is going to be a $100 billion construction technology company because internationally the problem is so acute and the market size is so large and the competition is essentially still the status quo that it provides a really wide open blue ocean. So a lot of the investment ROI math goes, what is the likelihood that Agoras becomes that $25 billion company? And then you're kind of backing in from there because they know there's a lot of cash needed to get there. But if you win, it's a massive win. So who's on your team? You mentioned your CTO, I think, was part of the Tesla outfit a while back. Um, so walk us through, like, who's steering the ship here? So uh, my actually, my CTO is a uh, best friend from childhood, co-founder. He and I actually served, we lived, we lived next to each other served in the SEAL teams together. Um, our kind of head of automation was uh, the gentleman that built the very first robot for, for Elon at the Fremont factory. And so he ran Tesla's automation stand up as it grew from, hey, we're building in Thailand all the way to Model X, Model 3, et cetera. Our head of, uh, our, basically our, our, our VP of growth or go to market is a gentleman that uh, was actually the, the lead architect on SoFi Stadium coming from WeWork and Clark Pacific, et cetera, a gentleman named Greg Otto. So really helping understand the go-to-market strategy of how do you, once the technology is figured out, how do you take this to mass market? Our head of manufacturing um, ran the largest and most successful offsite construction company in the US, which was a company called Integra out of Northern California. So he was head of manufacturing there previously. And um, 
uh, some of our supply chain talent coming from uh, Ford and, and a handful of other startups. And then our investment team is something I'm really proud of. And I say team because it's not the traditional investor relationship. Like they are part of this, their sleeves rolled up in the thick of it with us. And um, it's, it's, it's a really interesting mix. We've got uh, one of the foremost professors in the world on industrialized construction coming from Blackhorn Adventures, Dr. Ray Levitt. We have Toyota, which is a, obviously a robust manufacturing organization. We have uh, Point72, which is a, a kind of a larger East Coast Wall Street-minded hedge fund from Steve Cohen. Um, so we've got a very interesting dynamic cross-section of investors that each comes to the table with a passion for this problem, but a viewpoint that comes from a very different industry. Um. So you keep mentioning the seals thing. I've had I've had uh, a few seals on the show. Rock Denver, Leif Babin, uh, these sorts <laughs> of dudes. You, do Do you know any of them? Those, Rourke and Leif both put me through training. So absolutely. <laughs> We've now joined the faculty of the seals on the Matt yes. Brown show. Um, it's a small so world. It is right. I mean, it's it's crazy. I should do a seal show because um, you're all seemingly doing amazing things in the world of business. Just FYI, because. And that's my question, actually, is what did that experience, you know, because like I use the analogy of like if you're in a startup, you're pretty much going to war every day just that there's no bullets. Um, and, but at the, there's a lot of familiarity, I would I would guess. Um, is that true? And what did that, you know, what parallels have you been able to draw from your experience, you know, being deployed to being the CEO of a, of a, of a scale-up like Agoras? Uh, the parallels are staggering. And as time goes on, I, I see the value more and more, which is kind of why I made the comment about a really random background, but I think is very well situated to lead to this. Um, at a high level, there's some obvious ones. Building a startup is super stressful. It's stressful Ooh. on your wife. It's stressful on your husband, your kids, whoever. And if you cannot properly calibrate and deal with that stress, founder burnout is a very, very real thing. And so I think um, at the end of the day, one of the comments my wife and I all had is she's like, honey, at the end of the day, I know you're stressed, but I know you're going to come home every day. I know you're not going to get shot. You can put the kids to bed and you can go back to work. It's like a master reset for our family of just like, it's not that bad. The company goes under, okay, we'll find something else. But it, it, like, there's a calibration point that gives you some perspective, which is really good. I think the second aspect is part of part of managing a, a ground force in combat is very um, complex and three dimensional. So I'm, a, you know, as as an officer, you'll have you'll have aircraft overheads. So you're managing a whole bunch of fighter jets and remote, you know, RPAs and stuff in the in the air. You've got vehicles. You've got your partner force. So you might have a local. You've got a whole bunch of different things that are all going on at the same time. That's a lot of what it looks like to run a leadership team at a startup, where you've got a whole bunch of different folks that have to work together. And yes, there can be personal rubs, et cetera, but you're trying to take all these different assets and deploy them for a common mission, keeping them safe, making sure they're deconflicted and getting everybody back safely. And that process of being the master conductor behind the scenes, I think has paid huge dividends in trying to help understand how to solve the complexity that is a construction startup. Hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad that was validated. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, so Garrett, just to maybe uh, ask a few, have a bit of fun with you actually is where I want to start. But so um, if I, if I gave you the keys to the Matt Brown show time machine, and I asked you to go back to day one of this, this whole thing, like you're like, yo, I'm going to go there. 
Um, and you think about all the things that you achieved, raising the money, getting the right team, getting like product market fit, blah, blah. Um, what, would, what advice would you give yourself on day one if you could go back in time about building uh, Agoras? I'm joking. But on my dark days, I would say, don't do it. It's going to be way harder <laughs> than you think. Um, no, I would say, uh, I think the two biggest things I would go back and tell myself is actually what a mentor told me early on, which is obsess over your cash on hand and the people that you have on the team. Everything else will buff itself out. If you run out of cash, you die. If you don't get in bed with the right people and you don't build the right team, you will die. You can solve market concerns. You can solve customer concerns. You can solve technology concerns if you have the right people and enough cash. And so in a very ultra simple way, that's what I would have done. And what it would have affected in my math is I would have, I would have cared a lot less about dilution along the way. Dilution is something startup founders obsess over. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter as much as we think it does because we're so worried about the off chance. We're, you know, we're, we're borrowing problems from 10 years down the road when there's problems you know, this week facing us. So I would have raised more money and I would have focused on getting myself out of the doing mentality earlier and finding people that are better than it, better at, at that specific skill than me. Because I, I kind of, my co-founder and I prided ourselves on getting our hands dirty and getting into the weeds. And it was really, really good initially. I would have pulled back and tried to become a CEO much earlier instead of just the CEO that's you know got his tool belt on at the job site, which is which is good. It just I think we lost some of our vision and perspective because we got sucked into all the operational dumpster fires. I'm going to tweet that. <laughs> which part? Which part? Garrett's Mo dumpster the, fire? No, 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 no. The, for the most startups are borrowing problems from ten years in the future instead of focusing on problems they have now, because <laughs> it's so true, right? It's like. Yeah. Um, it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's a, it's a, I think it's because we live in the future so much. Don't yeah. we, you know, like, cause you can't, I literally, yeah, I spoke to friendly enough just to finish the, the thought there, but, uh, I spoke to a, a chap gentleman's name and he wrote, anyway, he wrote this super smart, like way smarter than me. Um, and you know, so smart, it's hard to have a conversation with him for like an hour on a podcast. Um, so he wrote, he's written m numerous books. I'll get the name while you're talking. I've got to Google it. But, um, uh, he, he was basically wrote the book on like the, the human mind and its ability to actually see the future. So if you, um, if you imagine your child and you have a kid, I have a kid, two kids or whatever so if you see that like my my, my baby girl reagan she's got a, a scooter so now i bought her a scooter on amazon because like shame you know like she needs to get out whatever but like she's not comfortable on that so immediately as a father you can see the 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 cock the the accident before it happens can't you it's like you like you know it's gonna and like don't do it don't do it do it like slow your control your speed like she almost had an accident and she's not wearing a helmet I was like oh my god my wife's gonna divorce me um you know it's like you can like see the future and I think this is this is the 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 mental construct isn't it of like a visionary borrowing problems from the future. You know what I mean? Which 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 is almost like this oxymoron because you have to live in the future in order to create it. Yeah, and I think I think that's specific to visionary founders, which you need that visionary because you have to live 10 years in the future. You're creating a future reality that hasn't existed. And I think one of the things that uh, maybe I'm stereotyping a bit, and maybe this is just me, 
but I don't think I quickly surrounded myself enough with people that like to live in today or tomorrow or this week because you need that balance. Because if you get so far caught up in the future, you're you, you're looking at the you need to look at your hori- the horizon and your toes at the same time, and that's really really difficult. And so, if you've got a team around you that's focusing on today's fires, then the visionary can stay focused on the future and the vision, et cetera. And so, that's a that's a delicate balance act because those two personalities are very much needed, but they're very different. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, um, Garrett, what's your vision? What's your vision? <laughs> for this whole company like what's the ultimate contribution you 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 know you hope to make to the world at a macro level we want to completely change how the world builds we want to look back in 10 or 20 years and go man matt do you remember when we used to build homes on site by hand you know with a bunch of stick built tools kind of like we look back now at like oh man do you remember when we used to have palm pilots how cool was that like a relic from a bygone era not, not with necessarily a whole bunch of nostalgia, but just, oh, that was a chapter in human history that was supplanted by the advent of the smartphone or internal combustions replacing horse and buggy or electric vehicles. And, or, like We want to be the catalyst that pushes the construction industry from one era into another. And the only way that we believe we can do that is if we can change the mindset around housing. Housing needs to become a product, like your computer, your car, your phone, et cetera. And if it continually remains a patchwork of services built by 35 different people, we're never gonna get there. But in order to build housing as a product, we have to build the technology that can do that because the technology just doesn't exist right now. We're landing rockets on the open ocean on barges. So it exists in a macro sense. We just have to take those advancements and bring them to construction so that you can build the housing product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's super exciting, and uh, I think what you guys have done is truly remarkable. And you know, it's why I love doing the show and is getting to spend quality time with with visionaries such as yourself, dude. So, congratulations to you and your team, uh, and super excited to see uh, where you guys are going to go in the future. Matt, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Gary. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.